0: Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. These days, we're studying Genesis as it leads into Exodus, its great sequel, and we hope to get you thinking about an old story in a new way. Once again, hey, everybody, and welcome to Jericho Road, where we are studying the books of Genesis and Exodus, the story of us. To begin our class this morning, however, I want to tell a story outside of the Bible and in the pages of American history. On November 19th, uh, 1863, one of the greatest speeches in American history was given by Abraham Lincoln. It's called the Gettysburg Address. It was written just four and a half months after the Battle of, De- of Gettysburg, and it was the dedication of a Soldiers' National Cemetery. Lincoln actually followed a two hour oration by a man named Edward Everett, and his speech was very short. It was just 271 words and 10 sentences. He didn't think much of it. He thought that history would forget it, but it has become uh, a national story. This speech has become a defining event. It's become a story to Tell us who we are as a nation. To define the Civil War as a war for the soul of the country, uh, to be fought to the end, uh, something not to be settled for, something to be hallowed, a country to be nurtured, a democracy to be uh, fought over and to be examined and to be honest. It it is truly a national moment, and it goes like this: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty. Dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Well, I'll start this way because Exodus itself is that kind of national story. The Exodus story, how they got to Egypt and how they got out of Egypt, is important for Israel understanding who they are as God's people. Words matter in this story. It's told in a way that's that's both tight and important, and it's told in a way to define who they would be forevermore. Exodus is a story that reveals that God wants a relationship and not a contract. The covenant entered into with Abraham and the promise that he would have children uh, forever and ever. Stars above his head would be his children, and through Christ, we believe that we are those stars. So the story of Exodus is our story as well. This story reveals that God not only loves us, but will save us. God will come to us when we cry out. As someone wisely said, this story reminds us, that our religion is less of a deal with God and more of a love affair. So, Exodus raises the question, no matter what, will you be different and not give in? No matter what, will you look to the sky and hope? No matter what, will you trust God to save you? I want to read just a few verses of Exodus today, a little like the Gettysburg Address, which reveals so much in such a short amount of time, and this is from Exodus chapter 7, just five verses. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, "When When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a wonder, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded His officials commanded his officials, and it became a snake. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and they became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up theirs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Well, If you read the story of Exodus as a whole, you'll see that once again this is a story about a snake. In Exodus chapter 4, God proves his power to to Moses and his own commission by asking him to throw down his staff, and it becomes a snake. Better yet, if you're paying attention closely, God asks Moses to pick the snake up by the tail. Now, friends, I don't like snakes, and I suspect that few people really like snakes, but even if you like snakes, you don't pick them up by the tail. Yet Moses does, and it stretches out and it becomes a staff again. Now that's a pretty cool story about a snake, except this story is different because it's, it has to do with Hebrew words. Now remember the lesson that we've been learning that the Hebrew language is word-poor language, which means there are only f- about 4,000 Hebrew words, where we have about 150,000 English words in our personal vocabulary and a million English words. So words important, and words matter, and normally they use one word to mean lots of different things except not here with the word snake. In Exodus chapter 4, where Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake and he picks it up by the tail, the word is just snake. However, in Exodus chapter 7, where Moses throws down his staff and the sorcerers throw down their staffs, the word is not snake. The word is dragon and howler. In other words, this gets right by us in translation, but Exodus chapter 7 is not only a national story and a defining story, it's a scary story. It's a showdown. It's a showdown between the forces of darkness and the forces of God, and it's even more terrifying because God's howler swallows theirs. This story is not a trick, but it's a sign. I want to take just a break and, and tell you The difference between signs and symbols. We often call a stop sign a stop sign, but it's really just a symbol because it can't make you do anything. So we talk about signs from God. Signs from God do stuff, and God never performs tricks to prove his existence. Jesus never healed someone so that people would believe in him. Rather, healings, doors of opportunity that open while windows close or windows close and doors open, being at the right place at the right time, a, a, a miracle of forgiveness. Those are all things that happen when God infuses our lives. Love, patience, wisdom, healing, life. Those things happen. Those are signs of God's presence. Those happen in the sunlight of grace. Those don't happen so that we might believe. We believe because those things are happening to us every day. So that's the first thing I want to remind you is this little story of Exodus reveals a cosmic showdown between God who will stand between those things that will kill us, despair, low expectations, loss of hope. We need signs from God right now. So much has been taken from us in this quarantine, in this hot summer, in this trying time. And yet, if we only look, we will find coincidences that aren't coincidences. We will find sunrises. We will find life and we will find hope. We will find the presence of God in our reality. And these are signs that we will be okay. Well, that's the first lesson. When we learn the difference between the two words, between snake and dragon, but there's another lesson as well. It is a scary story because God's dragon swallows the others. Swallow is a word of terror for the Hebrews. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. Remember the story of Jonah? I've got a little side story I'll tell you about Jonah that might um, entice us into understanding the word swallow. A few years ago with my men's men's Bible study, we we were trying to study uh, lesser-known or lesser-told tales of the Bible. And we got to the book of Jonah, and I tried something with the boys. I wanted to tell them uh, something that I learned in seminary, that the book of Jonah, my professors believed, was intended to be a satire to tell us the truth about God and about obedience, but it wasn't necessarily true. The reason for this is that my professors could never find a fish that could have even swallowed a man for three days. A whale, like Pinocchio, for instance, a whale with that kind of mouth capacity would either chew you up or have baleen. It's too complicated, right? There's not a fish or a whale that can swallow a human for three days and the boys weren't having it. Many of them are fishermen, and I suddenly got a torrent of emails and photographs of a specific fish that can swallow a man Don't say it's not true, they said. A grouper could have swallowed Jonah for three days. And ever since, I've gone with it. Sure, let's go with the story. A grouper swallowed a man, Jonah, for three days. Now, you know the story, right? Jonah uh, lived in a town uh, called, near a town called Jaffa, the port of Jaffa, and he was a prophet. And God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is a city far away, uh, and to proclaim God's love for them, a pagan city, a city that didn't know God or didn't love God, and Jonah didn't want to go. So he went and he got in this port that was 2,000 years old by the time Jesus was born. So the very ancient ports there today, you can see where Jonah set off from Jaffa and into, into the ocean to run away from God. And a great storm arises, and the sailors want to know the reason, and Jonah admits to them, right, well, I'm running away from God who asked me to go to Nineveh, and the sailors, being both superstitious and in keeping with their customs, they throw Jonah overboard. Rather, Jonah overboard, he sinks down into the water, and the sailors are safe. Meanwhile, a great fish, yep, a grouper, comes, swallows Jonah, swallows him up for three days. Now, think about a grouper for a minute. Wikipedia picture of a grouper. It's a big bass, basically, with a big mouth. So Jonah is in the stomach of this fish for three days. So it's not cavernous like Pinocchio where he can light a fire and look around and see ribs or anything. No, it's not like that. He's, he's, being, he's being digested by this grouper for three days. How What? Hera, right? In the darkness, in the salty, briny quiet of amino acids, he's being consumed by a grouper until three days later, the grouper spits him out on, on, onto the sand. Now, just imagine a Jonah lying in the sand, all scalded uh, by by his experience and gasping for air and can't believe these actual lives, which he cried out to God to do. And if you read the story carefully, this is the funny part. God doesn't say, Jonah, wear your clothes. Jonah, I hope you're not burned. Wear your wounds. Jonah, can you breathe? He didn't say anything like that. He says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Which means that when God tells us to do something, God means for us to do it, even when it's terrifying. So that's my little funny little reminiscence about Jonah. Uh, just remember, uh, sometimes you, you can't tell whether you're being saved or you're being killed. But we do, we do expect for God to protect us while we obey. And God does expect obedience. So, Moses' snake dragon, swallows, pharaohs, ministers, snakes, dragons, and is a cosmic showdown. And swallow is an important word because it's a terror word in the Hebrew language. But there are other ways to be swallowed besides a grouper. Nations can swallow others as well. And this story, we believe, of Exodus was written down in an important time in Israel's history. We believe that Genesis and Exodus like most of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, was all collated and codified at a time that we call the exile. Now, I go over this again and again, but I cannot emphasize enough the most important backstory of the Bible that we don't talk about so much is the story of the exile. Some six centuries before Jesus' birth, the Babylonian king had the novel idea. He was the superpower at the time to capture a subject people's and to take their best and their brightest far away to the super cities of Babylon. He took them far away, and they lost everything. Now, I find it curious that of the two experiences of God's people, Egypt and the Egyptian slavery on the one and exile on the other, the two experiences where they need for God to save them, the two times that they were swallowed up and they couldn't do anything on their own, we know a lot about one but not the other. Oh, we know a lot about the Egyptian slavery. We can study the plagues. We can study the Egyptian cities. We can study the story of Joseph, how he got there. We can study the story of Moses. Exodus chapter 5 tells us the elaborate labor system of the chain of command that goes all the way from Pharaoh to the top and slaves on the bottom. We can learn anything about the Egyptian captivity we want to learn. The centuries of bondage, the bricks without straw. Exile not so much. In exile, they are mere whispers of the story. Some stories are too sad to tell. Some things are too sad to talk about. I wonder if we're in that kind of time these days as well, as the quarantine drags on, as we're dealing with an economic freefall, as we're dealing with the terror of some who are compromised in their health of catching the virus, of others who are frustrated because they want to get back to life. And now as we face the very real pain of racial divide and reconciliation work that's so necessary but so hard. Exile is that kind of time when you're overwhelmed and you're swallowed and you can't even watch the evening news. But there are whispers. There are whispers in Scripture, and I do believe that Jeremiah said it best. Jeremiah 51, the prophet writes, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has devoured me. He's crushed me. He's made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. He's filled his belly with my delicacies. Being swallowed is pretty hard. Being swallowed is pretty frightening. Being swallowed is almost unbearable. And I think it's for this reason that on the last hour of Jesus' life, on this earth, before his resurrected form, Jesus would remember a psalm from this time of exile. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what it's like to be swallowed. But that's not all the story. God would save them in time, just like he always would. They would go home just like they always would. They would be saved again just like they always would. And I like to say that we study these stories in the Bible because if God did something once, God will do it again. If God did something for them, God will do something for us. If God will heal a blind man, God will heal me. If God will pick somebody up and set them on the road, the same will happen for me. If God will give someone hope, then I will be given hope. The same thing is true for them, the same thing uh, will be true for me, and here's how it works. I'm fascinated that in the nation of Israel, there are 35,000 archaeological sites, only a tenth of them uncovered. And so the Israeli Antiquities Authority uh, like to uncover the things that I think people want to come and see and spend money. And these are the major Christian sites because Americans can come over by the plane load and they can see where Jesus fed 5,000 people or, or where he healed, uh, healed an old woman of a fever. People can come to see those things, but of the 35,000 sites, we can see God at work too. We can see God at work in the Old Testament because God did the same thing in the New Testament and oftentimes in the same spot. There's a little town called Nain in the Jezreel Valley and uh I love that story because in Nain, uh, Jesus heals a, a dead boy off of a, off of a funeral bier, and his, his mother, a widow, is suddenly saved because in those days, if the child died, the mother would die as well. She had no one to support her. And everyone around cried, a great prophet has risen among us, and we might be tempted to think that that's no, that's no upgrade, but they're calling him a prophet because 800 years before, Elisha did the same thing right around the corner on the same mountain. Healed a Shunammite widow's Boy, a dead boy, our only source of of living, and so what they were crying out was God is back in living color, doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, saving us again and again and again and again, even when the story is full of terror. Jeremiah the prophet is an anthology of stories and thoughts, and Jeremiah knew this as well. He says this in Jeremiah in, in the sixteenth chapter of his anthology. He says. This is about God. What he, what he wants God's people to understand is that God's got your back, and God's going to take care of the things that seek to hurt you. So as frightening as anything might be in our world, even today or tomorrow or, or far into the future or well into the past, look around. God is always protecting us. And this is what he says about evil. Now I'm sending for many fishermen, says the Lord. They shall catch them, catch evil. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them, hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes, my presence, nor their iniquity is concealed from my sight. And I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations." Let's say something about idols in the Old Testament. Have you ever wondered why they had idols all around? Well, they have idols all around for at least two reasons. One, the Canaanite neighbors, they didn't believe in God, the the way that God's people had a relationship with God, that love affair with God. And so God did not want them running away. Uh, Our God is a jealous God and doesn't want us running away from petty gods that cannot save us in that way, can't save us from swallowing. God wants to save us from ourselves. And then there's another reason why idols are in the Bible. Those little golden calves that sort of perk up everywhere, they were rain gods. And in the Near East, if it doesn't rain, your crops don't grow and you die over the winter. They were hedging their bets. Perhaps in a drought, they were feeling swallowed. And so they decided to try something else, and it broke God's heart. And here in Jeremiah, the prophet is saying, I will root out evil. I will root out people who don't follow me. I'll root out people who who have been consumed by despair. I will root out people who will seek to harm you. If you will be different in the way that I ask you to be different in relationship with me, I will love you, I will care for you, and I will save you from harm. Now, as I like to say, if something happens once, it'll happen again. And I want to tell you that these words of Jeremiah were exile words. But fast forward. Four centuries to the lake called Galilee Jesus calls his pals and they knew the story of Jeremiah and this is what he says as Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen Jesus said to them follow me and I'll make you fish for people (laughs) and immediately they left their nets and father, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John who were in their boat mending their nets and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Of course they did. They remember Jeremiah. They remember Jeremiah said that God will come out and fish. Fish for evil. Now Jesus is sending out to fish for people to bring them under the safety of his arms. Doing again what he always did. Doing again what he's doing today. Calling us, protecting us, holding us saving us from our terror stories because on the other side of death, even death itself, there is always resurrection on the other side of nightmares there's always the mourning on the other side of pain, there will always be healing, remember at the end of the story it's always the same we go home I hope that you'll join me in continuing to read Exodus as a story of us and never be afraid of swallowed. Amen.